Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Castball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Handful of stuff we're going to get into today in a world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. And we'll talk a little bit about the program and lineup of the show and how often we're going to be going, hopefully, as we see the restrictions lifted in regards to everything we're dealing with with the pandemic, the country, the whole thing uh, will be broadcasting a little more often. And in all honesty, I mean, it's something that I miss. It's something I almost have to get myself fired up and ready to do when I'm not doing it as often. But we're going to get right into The Last Dance, which uh, episodes five and six you'll hear this Sunday live on ESPN and the first four episodes and the amount of attention that was put on the Detroit Pistons teams of the late 80s. And the first thing that I have to say about that is, This is a team that was clearly known for their certain style of play and the fact that they were known as the bad boys and they their intentions were basically to destroy the competition physically in a basketball game that was a lot more physical than it is right now. So the last thing that I want to hear from the bad boys is any sort of remorse or apologetic nature to anything that described the way that they played basketball. Because there is, first of all, there's no truth to that. It's an erroneous statement. It's a statement that you're making just to try maybe to appease a generation of people that are a little bit softer than they were during the time that you played. Understand this. There are people that are going to admire the way that the Detroit Pistons played basketball in the late 80s. They won two NBA championships. They went to another NBA finals. It it was, if you look at it, an all-time team that could be ranked amongst the best that ever played. So why are they taking a step back, whether it's Bill Lambeer or anybody that played on that team, to sound any sort of remorseful for the way that they played basketball? It's what they're going to be remembered for. And because of that, yes, there's going to be some consequences. There was a reason that Isaiah Thomas was not put on the Dream Team roster. Let's be serious. The Dream Team poster, which you see right there in back of me, one of the greatest teams ever assembled when the United States went to the Olympic Committee and proposed a chance for them to bring out their best professional players and try to be on par with Russia and the other countries that existed out there that had really professional players, but got in through a loophole of them being declared amateurs. Up to that point, the United States was only able to bring in college players or amateur players, players that had not yet made it to the National Basketball Association. When you talk about other countries in the world and their professional players were not considered professional because of a loophole in their classification of what a professional and an amateur athlete was. So they got that right. The United States should have the best players in its country representing themselves in the Olympics. And the other thing that really just needs to be reiterated, Michael Jordan may not want to hear this, but he essentially was the general manager of the 1992 Dream Team. And you may not have liked to hear that, 
it's not politically correct. And if you're looking at really the first four episodes or so of The Last Dance, the theme seems to be that this is something that's controlled by Michael Jordan. It's always going to paint the picture of Michael Jordan in the most positive of light. Greatest of all time. I got no issue with that. I'm not here to fight that. I'm not here to talk about anybody being up on the level of Michael Jordan as far as his impact on the game of professional basketball. But let's be serious. If you're going to knock the last dance, it's painting a very, very biased portrayal of Michael Jordan. I'd like to see some information about Michael Jordan and gambling. I'd like to see perhaps if there is a real reason why Michael Jordan walked away from the National Basketball Association in a prime of his career to play baseball with the White Sox and the Birmingham Barons. I want to hear a little more detail about everything that involves Michael Jordan, not just the positives, not just that he was the greatest leader on the greatest team. But the thing that I think is more important than that is the portrayal of the bad boys. And I'm not going to say that I love their style of play, but in a time in a National Basketball Association where the game was allowed to be played rough, everybody knew it. It wasn't just the Detroit Pistons playing a style of basketball that nobody else was playing. Celtics and Lakers are going at it. The Rockets you know, and Knicks and whoever else was playing were playing that same style of basketball. Obviously, the game has changed with the importance of the three ball now in 2020. Different game now than then. That's why it makes the Jordan and LeBron comparison so hard to make. But the Detroit Pistons did it their way. And the last thing I want to hear, whether it's Bill Lambeer, whether it's Isaiah Thomas, Dennis Rodman, anybody that wants to speak up about their portrayal in the last dance, they were what they were. You don't hear people, players from the 1986 New York Mets, Dow Strawberry, Keith Hernandez, and the likes, regretting the reputation that they had during those late 80s Mets. Now, the involvement with drugs, with Strawberry and Gooden, maybe that's a little bit of a different story. But there's a reason that they were called pond scum by the St. Louis Cardinals. They were known to be a little bit rougher than the rest. They didn't mind engaging in fights on the field. 1986 Mets and their four bench-clearing brawls that they had over the course of that season. They don't hide from their reputation. You haven't heard people say, oh, well, you know what? I regret the way that we acted on the field. That was one of the reasons why they won themselves a World Series championship and probably could have won another one in 1988 coinciding with around the same time that the Detroit Pistons were playing basketball the way that they were in a game that was played that way. So I don't want to hear anything about Bill Ambeer being remorseful about their reputation. Their reputation suited them well, and it won themselves two championships and got them to another. And the other part that I got to talk about is Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah Thomas is in the Hall of Fame. He is a... Great player, an all-time player, was certainly one of the greats in the late 1980s. Certainly was one of the best players to play on those 1990s Detroit Pistons teams. 
if he's going to whine and cry about the fact that Michael Jordan didn't want him on his team, then maybe he should have been focused a little more on how the way that he chose to play was going to be perceived by his peers. Because Jordan and Bird and Magic Johnson may not have necessarily liked each other, but they respected each other as people. Something that you lost respect along the way. Those players did not respect you, Isaiah, as a person. And we could get into, if you want to make this all, you know, Isaiah Thomas dumpster fire, you could talk about how he basically destroyed the Continental Basketball Association, his time with the Knicks, the sexual harassment scandal that was centered around him. But I don't want to get into that. Isaiah Thomas, the player, was known as one of the ringleaders, him and Bill Lambeer, of those 1980s Pistons teams. And not only did they beat the likes of the Celtics and the Lakers and the Bulls and win two championships and get to another. But they also created animosity amongst their peers, amongst their competition, amongst the players that were going up against them day in and day out. Like I said, Jordan and Bird didn't get along. But I think they admired each other for their greatness. And you could talk about something that's so simple as the Detroit Pistons walking off the court, not shaking the hands of the Chicago Bulls when they swept them in that series, when the Bulls finally beat them. I think there is something to that in the way they were perceived by their peers. Rough players that played over the top had a style of basketball that, you know what, while it contributed to their success, was also the reason that they were remembered for what they were remembered as. And on top of it, you throw in the fact that they were sore losers. They go out there and they try to hurt you for a long series. Not just try to foul you, not just try to intimidate you, but try to hurt you the whole time. They're playing over the course of the series, and then you beat them. They finally, they, they lose to you. They don't have the gall or the manhood or the professionalism to shake your hand as they're walking off the court. That's the way they were perceived. And anybody that goes out there, if you're a Detroit Piston fan at the time, if you're a player that played on those bad boy teams, if you were conscious enough of what was going on then and said, you know what, that just was a label. That's what you were to be labeled as. An overly physical team that maybe tried to hurt you almost took the style of basketball that was played to the nth degree and weren't remorseful for it. I'm not going to have a problem with it. Most people shouldn't have a problem with it. At least they identified with who they are. But I got a problem with 20-something years later, 30 years later, the ringleaders of those teams to all of a sudden say, hey, I feel bad. Why? The way you played led to the success that you had. Yes, it came with the consequences of Isaiah Thomas not getting on the dream team. Because when it came down to it, Michael Jordan was the general manager of that team. Whether it was officially or not. And whether it was Jordan, whether it was Magic Johnson, whether it was Larry Bird. And remember... 
you know, Magic Johnson's on this team kind of as a token for his career. You know, he, he announced he was HIV positive. He's not playing anymore. Larry Bird's right near the end of his career. So you're looking at a couple symbols of the game over the last decade or so. You're not asking, you know, um, you're not asking Magic or Bird to make a big shot in the gold medal game at the Olympics. But at least there was a respect there. Why would anybody respect the bad boys Pistons teams for the way they played? And why would anybody respect Isaiah Thomas enough to want him to be on the court and be a member of that team? John Stockton ended up getting injured and thought was he was going to have to be replaced off the roster. And the discussion was about bringing in another player. And Joe Dumars was going to get a chance over Isaiah Thomas. On top of it all, the coach, the coach of the Dream Team is none other than Chuck Daly. Chuck Daly is the Pistons coach. The guy that's leading them to the two championships and the one NBA Finals. So, obviously, Chuck Daly didn't have enough pull to get his best player. And I agree that Isaiah Thomas was the best player on a team. But he knew Jordan wasn't going to play if Isaiah Thomas was on that team. That team ain't the dream team without Jordan. If you're going to pick between Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas, you'd be a fool to not want Jordan on any team. Even if it's an all-star team of the Washington Wizards of the last couple of years of his career when he came back to play in the NBA for a third time. So I look at it and I try to compare the Bad Boys Pistons and a reputation to something that was kind of close to him. But in a world of sports, it was hard to compete with the likes of the Bad Boys. I, I mentioned the 86 Mets before. You know, they got a little bit of a reputation. They're remembered, obviously, for, you know, the confrontational, in-your-face type of play. When I think of the 86 Mets, I think of Gary Carter jumping out of the dugout, rallying the fans up, you know, kind of as a sign of negative sportsmanship, showing up your opposition, saying, hey, I just hit a home run off of you, basically suck it. That's what I think of the 86 Mets. The, in a time of excess, which the 1980s were, the Mets were basically there to stick it in your face. We are that good, and we've proven it to you, and we're going to rub it in. So there's the Mets, who you can think of along the same lines as the bad boys of the Pistons. And once again, the New York Mets, 30-something years later, aren't regretting the way they play baseball. Gary Carter, till his dying day, wasn't remorseful of the fact that when he hit a big home run, he was getting out of the dugout multiple times, pumping up the fans, sticking it in the face of his opposition. But I also think of the 1990 bad boy or nasty boy, Cincinnati Red Bullpen, led by Rob Dibble, Norm Charlton, Randy Myers. Now, Randy Myers is kind of a quiet guy until he gets acquired by the Cincinnati Reds. Somebody that had pitched for the 1986 World Series champion Mets. Actually had a fight to get his World Series ring down the road. He was on that team. He wasn't on a postseason roster, but he contributed to that team. I would have given a World Series ring to any player that played a game for that team in 1986. But that's just me. Rob Dibble comes in. And it's basically just known as 
the dart thrower. You know, that high 90s fastball that we talk about in Major League Baseball in 2020 as being common. Every team in baseball has got a pitcher or two in their bullpen that's hitting the high 90s. But Rob Dibble was one of the only ones at the time that he was pitching that basically struck fear in their opposition because sometimes he didn't know where the ball was going. Sometimes he'd take the ball and he'd just fling it to the backstop just to scare the, the opponent. Make sure that hitter says, wow, you know, I don't, I don't think he knows where the ball is going. I better watch out. But with the three of them, the reputation they had, and they, they basically were able to help an inferior team. The 1990 Cincinnati Reds were a good baseball team. You know, the Barry Larkins and uh, Chris Sabos and the like, Billy Hatcher and his performance in a postseason. But what happened, what kind of led them to the success that they had is their identity. And their identity was their three-man back of the bullpen called the Nasty Boys. And it, I, you could go back in history of baseball and you, you very seldom seen an element like that. Not just a bullpen, but three pitchers that struck fear in the opposition that allowed for that team to maybe overachieve or maybe reach its potential. Because nobody's going into the 1990 season saying, hey, watch out for those Cincinnati Reds. They're not even looked at as a favorite in their own division. There's the Giants. There's the Dodgers. There's a series of other teams. Even the San Diego Padres are kind of coming back to life at that point. You know, the likes of Roberto Alomar and Tony Gwynn still in the prime of his career. If I'm trying to predict who's winning the 1990 National League West Division, I'm sorry. I'm not picking the Cincinnati Reds. So that bullpen had an impact and a reputation which led to them maybe overachieving in some areas. Now, you compare that to the likes of the Detroit Pistons who are playing basketball at around the same time. I think it was more of a mentality. And obviously, basketball is a different game than baseball. You're looking at five guys on a court playing together, all playing a certain style of basketball. Pitchers can impact games in baseball while the other eight players may not have as much of an impact. Sure, player, a, a defensive player can make an error that could cost you a game. You do need some element of team when it comes in there. But there's two players that are on the field at all times in a Major League Baseball game that can have the ultimate advantage to be able to change a game. One of them's the pitcher, the other one's the batter. And yes, just about everybody that's on that field, 99.999% of those that are on the field in a Major League Baseball game will get a chance to hit, obviously, baseball circa before DH. But if they don't get the hit, they get the pitch. And there's that one time, either you're throwing a ball or you're hitting a ball, you have a chance to do more than anybody else on that field. Basketball, obviously, is different. It's a style of play. It's a group of the five that are on the court at the same time. And the bad boys don't have success in the late 1980s if it's not for a combined team effort. If it's not for the Rick Mahorns and the Dennis Rodmans and the John Sallies and the Microwave, Vinnie Johnson and Dumars and Isaiah Thomas and Lambeer, all those players 
contributing to playing the same style basketball and sticking up for each other. Well, then Bears throwing elbows and haymakers at anybody in sight. It's up to those other players that are on the court to defend him and be his teammate. But once again, it bothers me the fact that Lambeer or anybody else is at any point remorseful about the way they play basketball. And Isaiah Thomas, listen, boy, I don't want to hear you crying about not being on that dream team. Michael Jordan was the general manager of that team. And Michael Jordan respected Larry Bird and Magic Johnson in spite of not really caring for them as players and competitors. He didn't respect you as a person. The fact that you were out on that court along with Lambeer trying to injure the opposition. So I don't want to hear you crying about not being on that 1992 Dream Team. They would have put about eight to ten other players from the Detroit Pistons on that team before they put you out there. And the coach you got, Chuck Daly, one of the best of all time, is your head coach, and he doesn't have enough pull to get you on that team. That shows about how your reputation was throughout the very sport that you were a part of. And not to mention, you were great at it. You're a Hall of Famer. There's no question that I look at Isaiah Thomas as being the best on that Detroit Pistons team. He was the best player. Still doesn't mean that he conducted himself in a way that was parallel to the way the other players conducted themselves on the floor. Like I said, Larry Bird was a dirty player. Some of the other players, the star players that played in the NBA were a little bit on the dirty side, a little bit on the cheap shot side, a little bit on the over-physical side in a game in the NBA that was played that way. Isaiah Thomas was over the top. Bill Lambeer was over the top. And while I don't want them to be regretful of the way they played, they have to understand that there are consequences for the way that they acted on the court. And Isaiah Thomas... I don't want to hear him crying anymore about not being on the 1992 Dream Team. He didn't deserve to be there. Maybe if you were ranking players based off of their performance on the court, he may have been warranted. But he didn't conduct himself in a way where Michael Jordan or Larry Bird or Magic Johnson or Carl Malone or David Robinson or Patrick Ewing or Chris Mullen or anybody, anybody else that was on that team wanted to be teammates of him. It's copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights, granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, other use of pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com, and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial other use of the program, such as by charging, admission for its showing is similarly prohibited. So I was thinking about this, and this is a little bit of a stretch, but I don't think I've made my points clear enough when it comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame and the fact that it still remains to be out of touch so many years later. 
Now, baseball has been involved in scandal, probably scandal that is stronger than that of any other sport. I don't think pro football or basketball or hockey or NASCAR or tennis has been involved in a such scandalous activity of controlled matches or games not being on a level. The 1990 black, 1919 Black Sox really put a tarnished image of the entire world of sports and not just Major League Baseball. There was doubt once the Black Sox scandal went down and it was determined that the players did what they did that it was very hard for the fans, the very patrons of the game of sports, those that show up and pay admission to see live athletes compete, to trust that what was happening on the field was really on a level. So while other sports may have had some semblances of it, baseball was impacted the most. You think of the use of performance-enhancing drugs as they apply to baseball and the comparisons to that of other sports. There are obviously instances where performance-enhancing drugs were used in a world of baseball, in a world of football. Hockey players have used PEDs. College players have used PEDs. I'm sure golfers and tennis players and swimmers Obviously, track and field stars have been caught using performance-enhancing drugs. But it really didn't hit as much of a scandalous route as it did in Major League Baseball. As it, the use of PEDs not just impacted the fans' trust in the game. Are the players clean that are playing? Are the players that you are rooting for or rooting against clean? Which ones have an unfair advantage against those that are just trying to play the game correctly? So much happened to the sports fan, to the baseball fan that's watching a game to mess with their trust. And that I understand. I get it. I see it up to a certain level. But then when we get into the records that are being broken, the home run records, and we start to look at accomplishments that happened over the course of baseball players' career. And we say that, yes, there's a lot of taint on them. There is a lot of distrust in the authenticity of the numbers and the accomplishments of some of the greatest players to ever play the game. Now we start getting into the politics of its respective Hall of Fame. And the fact that, listen, there is no other sports Hall of Fame that is governed with as much almost animosity towards as the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, as the Baseball Hall of Fame located in Cooperstown, New York. Now, a great museum, everybody that's involved in that to put that museum together, what it is for the fans that go there and get to see it. There's a separation. There's a separation between the operation of the Hall of Fame, which is a group, a board of governors, a group of people that, make the Baseball Hall of Fame as the museum what it is for the people that go and see it in the process and the politics that are involved in who's enshrined in its respective Hall of Fame. And I still have a problem with that. I'm not going to look at the Baseball Hall of Fame the same until it acknowledges 
It's all-time hits leader. It's all-time home run leader. The players with the second, excuse me, the players with the third and fourth highest cumulative batting averages in the history of the sport. The player with the most Cy Youngs. The player with the most MVP awards. The four players with the highest single season home run totals are all not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. So I went a little tongue-in-cheek with it, and we'll see what the response is when I threw this message out there. I was ranking the best sports Hall of Fames, not necessarily because of the museum, All with all due respect to the, you know, Tim Mead and Jeff Vitalson and everybody that was involved and is involved in the presentation of that museum and what it is for the players that are in it, what it is for the fans that go and see it, with all due respect to them. Here's the best Hall of Fames when it comes to recognizing the best to play in each respective sport. Number one is the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Number two is the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Number three is the Hockey Hall of Fame in Minnesota. Number four is the NASCAR Hall of Fame in Charlotte, North Carolina. Number five is the Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. Number six is the NCAA Hall of Fame in Indianapolis, Indiana. Number seven is the Track and Field Hall of Fame in Washington Heights, New York. Number eight is the Soccer Hall of Fame in West End, New York. Number nine is the Swimming Hall of Fame in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I'll name any other type of sport that exists out there that has a Hall of Fame before I declare that the Baseball Hall of Fame has done its job, whether it's the writers, whether it's the people on the board, whether it's his veter its Veterans Committee, they have not done the job they need to do to acknowledge the best players to ever play in its respective sport. And it's not just because of the gambling, whether we're talking about Shoeless Joe Jackson, whether we're talking about Pete Rose. You want to talk about steroids as it impacts Barry Bonds and the likes of Roger Clemens and Manny Ramirez and Mark McGuire and Raphael Palmaro. And I'll, I'll keep naming players all day that used performance-enhancing drugs but didn't hide from the fact that they accomplished what they did. But it's also the fact that baseball has a 10-year rule. That means that you had to play in the major leagues for 10 years to get into the Hall of Fame. The likes of a Ross Barnes, who was the best player in the from 1871-1875, didn't play long enough to qualify for the Hall of Fame. Dave Orr, one of the best players in the American Association when it was a major league is not given proper consideration for the Hall of Fame. Yet Drazen Petrovic, who we know passed away in the prime of his career, may he rest in peace, Godspeed, is in the Basketball Hall of Fame after only playing a couple seasons. That makes you think of the likes of a Thurman Munson, who may have had some time left, may have been about to enter the south part of his career, maybe the last dwindling years of Thurman Munson's career would be maybe 1980 through 1983 or 1984. You know about being a catcher 
and the stress it puts on your knees and you know, that's why even a guy like Johnny Bench, as great as he was, just wasn't the same player in the last handful of years of his career. But it, does Thurman Munson belong in the Hall of Fame because his career is incomplete? Now, I don't even have Herman on my t- – I, I don't even – excuse me, Herman. I don't even have Thurman on my top 20 list of baseball players that are have been neglected from its Hall of Fame. And the reason that that's the case is because baseball has done such a terrible job of putting in the best players that have ever played. Any Hall of Fame that doesn't have the Barry Bonds and a Roger Clemens and a Rafael Palmeiros of the world and a Pete Roses and a Joe Jacksons, with all due respect to the negativity that they are associated with with baseball, they were still all-time greats. Pete Rose is the winningest player in baseball history. There's nobody that's ever played Major League Baseball that has been part of more winning games than Pete Rose. Pete Rose was the epitome of the way baseball was supposed to be played all out, all the time. You want to watch a five-minute video of Pete Rose playing the game of baseball if you're a kid and you want to learn the right way how to play. And listen, I get some of the semantics that are involved. You don't want Pete Rose if you, you know, let him back in a game. You don't want the Reds to hire him as their manager for the 2021 season. I get it. Because there may be a team stupid enough out there to do that, to throw it back in Major League Baseball's face. And Pete will say whatever he wants. Pete wants to be back in a game. Pete wants to wear that uniform again. And with all due respect to Pete Rose and his accomplishments, I hope that he gets in. It's likely it'll be after he passes. And it's unfortunate. But I think of those that have passed already, the likes of Joe Jackson. Yes, what Joe Jackson was part of in 1919 with the Black Sox signifies everything that was wrong with baseball at that time. And his part in it, which was not at the level of Swede Reisberg and Chick Gandel, who were really the ringleaders of the whole thing, uh, baseball historians have you know, disputed with me. Oh, well, they're really not. It was Eddie Seacott. It was Lefty Williams. It was Joe Jackson. Those were the bigger names. And you couldn't have had the fix of the 1919 World Series without them. But who's discussing this with the gamblers first? It's Reisberg and Gandel. It's Reisberg and Gandel that are talking about this together that eventually get this out to the other players that are on that team. And Joe Jackson, you can knock him and say he just didn't have the intelligence or he just was not educated enough to understand what he was doing was wrong. Or maybe not even agreeing to what he agreed to. Because it didn't look like he compromised his play at all during the World Series. You know, Buck Weaver, the third baseman, gets banned for life when he didn't take any money. He was pissed off because the players were in on a fix and they were doing what they were doing. He tried to counteract that. Him and, him and J.J. had the best World Series out of anybody on that White Sox team. So when you think about it, Shules Joe Jackson should be a, you know, when you think of pardons, 
You think about the president of the United States, whatever president, there's been 45 of them. Anyone you want to refer to has pardoned some people that have done things wrong. They've pardoned, in some case, criminals. They've gotten people out of jail because of their power of being the president of the United States. I think it's time to pardon the likes of Joe Jackson. A little bit of a recap of the show today. Spent some time talking about The Last Dance. Um, obviously, it's a it, it's an important topic to bring up because, you know, it's one of the only things that's going on here. I don't want to get all speculative when it comes to sports and what sports we're going to see and what crazy ideas that are going to be out there. I think every writer has a dream scenario of what they think would be the best way to bring back sports. I want to be out of I want to be out of my house. I want to be in a general public with family and friends before I'm worried about having sports back. But the last dance focusing in on those bad boys Detroit Pistons teams, one of the things that bothered me about it was I don't want to hear Bill Lambeer apologizing. I don't want to hear Bill Lambeer saying he was remorseful about the way that they played. The way they played led them to where they ended up getting to as NBA champions. And one of the better teams that we've seen. You want to talk about top 10 group of teams or teams of all time? I think those Pistons teams belong in there. You can mention the Bulls. You can mention a couple of the Celtics teams. You can mention the Lakers. At some point, you'll get to the Pistons amongst the best teams of all time. San Antonio Spurs, Golden State Warriors. Those Pistons teams were good, but they were good because of the way they played. Last thing I want to hear is anybody being remorseful about the way that they played. Isaiah Thomas, not getting in, not getting on that dream team selected by general manager Michael Jordan. Let's make that clear. Michael Jordan was the general manager of that dream team. There was nobody that was going to be on that team that Michael didn't approve of. And Isaiah Thomas, even though Jordan didn't necessarily like Bird, he didn't necessarily like Magic Johnson, he didn't necessarily like Patrick Ewing or Carl Malone or a lot of the players that he went up there against. He at least respected them as basketball players. What the Detroit Pistons teams did was over the top. It identified them as being what they are. They're the bad boys. They're always going to be remembered for that reputation of what they did. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I want to hear Isaiah Thomas crying about not being selected for the 1992 Dream Team. Spoke about Hall of Fames in all sports and at some point, Major League Baseball hopefully will right its wrong. I think there's too much politics involved in baseball. Barry Bonds hit 762 home runs. Whether you like him or don't like him, whether you identify him as a steroid cheat or not, he still hit more home runs than anybody. He hit more home runs than Henry Aaron. He hit more home runs than Babe Ruth. He hit more home runs in a season than anybody in the history of baseball. He hit 73. Mark McGuire hit 70. Sammy Sosa hit 66. Roger Maris hit 61. None of them are in baseball's Hall of Fame. And you look at the Basketball Hall of Fame, and I've stated before that I think it is a little more watered down than in other sports. 
Drazen Petrovic, listen, a sad story. It's awful that he ended up dying at such a young age. Only played four or five seasons in the NBA. I think it's a reach to put him in a Hall of Fame. Bill Fitch coached the Celtics to a championship. Had a lot of bad seasons for a lot of bad teams as a coach. Is not a Hall of Fame coach, in my opinion. He's in a basketball Hall of Fame. I think it's a little watered down. You know, Vlade Divac, was he really that much of a star that he's a, a no-doubt Hall of Famer? Come on. But at least bas- all basketball's greats are in there. There's no Michael Jordan that isn't in Basketball Hall of Fame because of anything that's not related to basketball. In fact, I'll leave you on this. Michael Jordan obviously had a compulsive gambling problem. One that may have led to his decision or agreement to walk away from the NBA the first time when he went in 1994 to play for the Birmingham Barons of the Chicago White Sox, the AA farm team. Michael Jordan gambled on sports. Did he gamble on basketball? Did he gamble on his team? Think about all the stuff that is held back when it comes to the last dance. All the negative things you could say about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan wasn't perfect. He's an all-time great, but just like any all-time great, he was not perfect. So if you look at it from that perspective, are we going to continue to honor Michael Jordan as the best of the best? When he bet on sports? Did he bet on basketball? Did he bet on the Bulls to win or lose? Once again, so much more information about Michael is held back because Michael is the king of his own PR. What if Barry Bonds had that ability to hide any evidence that would have linked him to the use of performance-enhancing drugs? What if Pete Rose had that ability to hide all the books of when he bet and what he bet on? When it comes to baseball. And he's talking about deception. Rose lied. Well, where does withholding the truth constitute a lie? Because that's what we have to think of when it comes to Jordan. He certainly did withhold some truth. We don't know the depths of his involvement in gambling. We don't know the depths of the reason why. He walked away from the NBA after winning his first three championships with the Chicago Bulls. That's pretty much it. Cuckoo clock says I'm done. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by two ways. One passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We're going to try to get back with you a couple times during the week. I'm thinking Friday. We're going to do back-to-back shows Friday and Saturday of next week. And hopefully, as we start to distance ourselves less from the amount of time we wait between times doing a show, we're going to be on a little more often talking about everything in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. Enjoy the next couple episodes of The Last Dance. Enjoy any discussion that you want to have amongst yourselves when it comes to when are sports coming back, when are you leaving your house, the whole thing. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.